Well, good morning, Community Church. To those of you who are gathered here in Mount Pleasant, also to those who are gathered in Alma, and those who are watching online, excited that you are here as we're continuing through Romans chapter 8. I also want to say good morning to those of you who are connected to us from St. John's and the surrounding community in Clinton County. Uh, We are just months away from the launch of the St. John's campus, and we are so excited that you guys are part of the church. Give that a huge round of applause. Cannot wait to soon have you as a regular campus uh, meeting weekly in St. John's. Well, it may or may not come as a surprise to some of you that uh, teachers just loved me growing up. And I don't know if it was the smile, I don't know if it was because I was a polite kid or it was pretty smart in school, Uh, it was probably mostly because I was a complete suck-up growing up. And so I tended to get away with murder, like pretty much anything I did, they were like, there's no way Aaron could do any wrong in the classroom. Uh, Just by way of example, I was thinking about this recently, and there was a time in high school when I was riding piggyback on my good buddy Jeff, and had a makeshift joust out in front of me. We were running through the hallway between classes, uh, and a student teacher, I remember vividly, just looking horrified and shocked at whatever was happening right in front of them. And next to the student teacher, another seasoned teacher elbowed and said, just just let them go. Just let them go. They can do whatever they want. I got away with everything. Teachers absolutely loved me. Every teacher except for one. Miss Walker. And for whatever reason, she was not subject to my charm. For some reason, I was on her bad side. In fact, anytime I did something wrong, something a little bit naughty, She had this superpower. She would always just mysteriously appear behind me. And I can picture Miss Walker staring down over her long nose and her wide-brimmed glasses, just shaking her head disapprovingly. And, you know, it caused me to constantly be living in a state of fear. In fact, I think of Miss Walker, and I think she is a killer of fun. And I don't know if she secretly relished it, if she enjoyed it. She, She might have or if she was just trying to do her job, but she was absolutely against me. Today we're talking about this idea of God being for us, and I wonder if some of us have a similar view of God that I had with Miss Walker. Have there been times in your life when you felt like God was against you, where he was looking to just find your mistakes, to to look for something that you're doing wrong? And when you do mess up, have there been times when you just you expected God to be standing there shaking his head and saying, I just knew it, I knew this was coming, I knew you were going to biff this? Have you ever held on to a belief about God that he was just waiting to teach you a lesson? He was just waiting with a big old stick, his smiting stick, right? And he was going to bring judgment upon you right when you messed up. Does something bad happen in your life and you think, Man, what did I do to make God angry? Like, I must have done something wrong because God's surely punishing me. If I'm honest, I know that I've had that feeling in the past. Something bad's happened in my life, and I assumed that it was from God. In fact, maybe I even blamed God for it, or I asked God, where are you in this? Asked, maybe God is punishing me for something. Or here's the reverse The opposite of that is, have you ever felt like you had to earn God's favor or approval, whether this is a conscious or a subconscious idea? And when you were doing really good, when you were doing the right things, when you weren't struggling, you were going to church, you weren't yelling at your kids, then somehow that was when God would would suddenly have approval for you. 
that you'd somehow be earning his favor, then God would really love you or bless you. Have you ever lived under the assumption that you need to persuade God to love you? I think if we're honest, we often live this way. Many of us live with this understanding of God. We have this Santa Claus view of God. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. You know it. Christmas is right around the corner. We have this idea that God is holding this naughty and nice list. And I just want to be on that nice list, right? So I'm going to do whatever it takes to try to be in God's favor. There was a time a couple Christmases ago where one of my daughters had a particularly naughty week. Actually, it wasn't a naughty week. It was a naughty season leading up to Christmas. And so my wife and I had done the normal parental threatening of, you don't want to get on Santa's naughty list. It's going to be bad for you. And she was not taking the hint. It seemed like all the way up to Christmas, she just, one thing after the other, just seemed to keep on getting in trouble. And the day before Christmas, my wife and I are sitting there, and we're just staring at each other. And we're like, I don't know what Santa's going to do. Like, she definitely didn't deserve presents just because of her merit. And the next morning, she found a handwritten note uh, from Santa about grace and mercy that was shown to us at the cross. And she still got, got her presents. And, but it was this lesson of saying, man, she was potentially going to be on the naughty list. And if, it's been a few years since then, and I was actually curious if she remembered that lesson. And this last Christmas, she was very quick to remind mom and dad just how good she had been this year. Does God have a naughty and nice list? I just want to start by saying God doesn't function that way at all. In fact, last week, Pastor Allen laid out in Romans 8, verse 28, God works for the good of those who love God. In fact, God working for your good is such a promise that he doesn't see you or love you the way that you see or love yourself. But do you believe that? Do you believe that God is working for your good? Whether you are intentionally or unintentionally doing exactly what he wants you to do. And that idea is what brings us to our text for today from Romans chapter 8. And if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open with me, or it'll also be on the screens over here. Uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 31. God's word says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, the if in this statement is not a question. Paul has been setting up his, his argument throughout the preceding chapters, not just chapter 8, but the, the preceding chapters in the book of Romans. It's a foregone conclusion at this point. God is for us. God is for you. He's in your corner. He wants what's best for you. He has a, a plan for your life now, here on this earth, in your community, in your house, in your workplace, in your family. To those who belong to him, he has a plan to keep you, to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus, and to seal you for heaven. I love these verses that we're looking at today because it's almost like Paul, here at the middle of the book of Romans, is giving us a little mini test. He's giving us a pop quiz. So we're halfway through and Paul is, is throwing it out, and it's not just a test for Romans chapter 8. 
Just a quick summary of what he's laid out in the book of Romans. In Romans 1 through 3, it lays out the fact that we are under judgment of God. That because of our problem with sin, our rebellion, we are in great need. And the penalty for our rebellion against God is death. It's a problem. But praise God, a way out has been revealed from heaven through Jesus. And then Romans chapter 4, it says that it's by faith alone, not by works, that we can receive this righteousness. In chapter 5, that receiving Christ, we've been reconciled to God. We've been made right with God. And then chapter 6 through 8, there is this mystery where we, we receive that free gift of grace and we are filled by the Spirit of God. And Pastor Wally a few weeks ago says that that filling of the Spirit gives us a new identity, a new sense of being. And there's this mystery where we are now called sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. It's absolutely unbelievable. And then Pastor Allen said last week, as a result of that, we know God promises that he is working for your good. And so Paul is saying, what shall we say to these things? All of these things that have just been laid out, these are the things, amazing things. And here's the summary. Here's the simple truth. God is for you. God is for you. He has you in mind. Don't let your present circumstances deceive you. God is not opposed to you. And for some of you, you need to hear that today because you look at your present circumstances. You look at the way that your life maybe feels like it's falling apart. You look at the struggles that are around you and you say, man, it certainly doesn't feel like God is for me. And if that's you today, I can't think of anything better than this promise from Scripture, the God of the universe, the one who set the stars and planets in motion, he cares about you. He is for you. It's absolutely remarkable. And Paul is saying, if God is for us, if, if that God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Who is going to stand up against God? What problem is there that is going to be a match to steal away what we've been given through Christ Jesus? And so stand a little taller. Be a little bolder. God is for you. And how can we know this? The text continues in verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? If God was willing to send Jesus, his own son, to the cross, how could he possibly not want to also give us all things? It's an interesting argument because Paul is moving from the greater to the lesser to prove his point. He's saying, you know, God has already given you the greatest gift of all, his son, Jesus. Anything else that we might need in light of that is absolutely insignificant in comparison to what God has already done for us. Think of it by this way. Uh, every couple years, our family saves up and we tend to go on a big vacation, and it's one that we know is probably going to cost a little bit. In fact, the more family, being a family of six, uh, that budget just seems to keep on going up. But one of our favorite locations to go is Orlando. And so our girls came to be part of our family through adoption just a couple years ago. And when they came into our house, we couldn't wait to give them their first experience at Disney World, their first experience in Orlando. And so we saved and we planned. And first we bought the plane tickets 
And then we rented the rental car, and we paid for the hotel that we were staying at. You know, all of these expenses is just kind of racking up, but we had planned for it. We knew it was coming. Uh, Then we pony up for the tickets to Disney World, which that's cashing out the 401k type budget right there. (laughs) And then then finally the day arrives when we're going to pull in to Disney World, and everyone's excited. I got the video camera going on my cell phone. We're We're all ready to pull in. And we come around the corner, we're in the, the traffic pulling into to the amusement park, uh, and suddenly there's a sign there, one last time they're going to milk you for money. Actually, it's not the last time they're going to milk you for money, but <laughs> parking, $18. Now, what do you think the odds are that I'm going to slam on the brakes and be like, that's it, I have spent enough on this trip. We are turning around and heading home. I can't spend the $18 to get us in. Now, my wife would probably kill me in that instance, if that were the case. But no, that seems insignificant in light of what already has been paid for that trip. We're going to be absolutely enjoying our time that day. How could I not? And Paul is saying, God has already given extravagantly. He's already blown the bank. He's already spent everything that he needed to spend. Just look at the cross. 1 John 4 Starting at verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want proof that God is for you. There is something that happened in history that shows how much he loves us. How will he also not give us all things? How how could he possibly want to hold that back? All things necessary to get you to your ultimate destination. All things to conform you into the image of his son. All things to bless you and keep you through good times and maybe even more importantly for us to remember through tough times. It's exactly what Jesus talked about in the book of Matthew in chapter 7. Jesus said, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. And if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It was not too long ago that uh, we were sitting at the dinner table, and, uh, and I made my famous macaroni and cheese. And my famous macaroni and cheese, it's not, not really that much of a secret. I just put way too much butter in there. And every possible shredded uh, cheese packet in the fridge goes in as I'm, as I'm trying to make the macaroni and cheese. And so everyone loves dad's macaroni and cheese. And we're sitting around the table, and I'm sitting at one end. The mac and cheese is right next to me, proudly at the head of the table, my daughter Sienna is sitting at the far end uh, over by her mom, and she's finished her macaroni and cheese, and she turns to her mom, and she says, Mom, can I have some more mac and cheese? And mom looks at her and says, well, why are you asking me? Ask your dad. He's sitting over the other end. And Sienna uh, doesn't turn around and ask dad. She looks straight ahead, this look on her face, silence, not wanting to ask. And I, and I was curious in that moment, why is she afraid that, to ask dad? So I just let her sit for a minute. Time goes by, no mac and cheese. 
I wonder how she feels. Does she feel fear? Does she feel fear of rejection? Like fear that I'm not going to give her what she wants? And how do I feel in that moment? I'm I'm asking, why does my daughter not want to just ask me? Eventually, I break the silence. I say, Sienna, why don't you just ask? I made this mac and cheese. It's extra creamy. There's a secret recipe knowing that you just might enjoy it. Of course, I want to give it to you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you more than you could possibly comprehend. He wants to fill your life with good things. He wants to fill your life with divine appointments and with purpose and with meaning. And the cross is the proof of just how far God is willing to go to take care of you. And he's not done with you yet. In fact, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The text continues with the next pop quiz question in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is going to bring a charge against those that God has called? Those who belong to the family of God. And he's saying it's definitely not God. God is the one who justified you. Justification is the the fancy word for the action that God took. Looking at us guilty as a result of sin, and the penalty for that sin, us deserving death. And rather than us paying the penalty for that debt, God sent his son Jesus, perfect in every way, to die on a cross to pay that debt on our behalf. And as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, when we accept him, we are seen as righteous before God, not because of our own good works or the fact that we're trying to do it right or because we're trying to play church, but simply because of the righteousness of Jesus that covers us, that justifies us. And as a result of this, that those who call in the name of Jesus are declared innocent of all charges. That is what God did for you. He ruled you innocent of all charges. I think it's so interesting that Paul uses judicial language here. We are declared not guilty at the highest level of authority. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. There is no other court that is higher. So here in the United States, if a judgment is made at the Supreme Court, there is no lower court that can make a different ruling. Paul's saying, how could anyone bring a charge against you? It's a rhetorical question. Because here's the crazy truth from this. Your greatest problem has already been solved. Whether you know it or not, your greatest problem has already been solved. And so who's going to bring a charge against you? Now, there might be those who try. In fact, I know there will be those who try. Sometimes it might be someone around us, other people who, you know, whisper things or try to tear us down or make us feel unworthy. Other times that feeling can come from within, either an insecurity or often that voice against you in your mind or in your heart can come from an adversary because we know that there is an adversary in this world. In the Bible, he's referred to as Satan or the devil. 
In the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the accuser. He is constantly pointing his finger at the people of God, condemning them, trying to call them out day and night. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Job. And Job is faithful to God. He loves the Lord. And he has been blessed in many ways in his life. There are many good things. He's got a large family, a large estate, good health. And in this account from the Old Testament, Satan goes before God and says, the only reason that Job is faithful to you is because you bless him. Take away his blessing and he'll curse you. Satan says, I can shatter his faith. So for whatever reason, God lets Satan loose. And Satan goes to work on Job. All of Job's livestock, his estate, are killed and taken from him. His children are killed. And Job is even stricken with sickness, with sores. It's probably the worst day you can possibly imagine anyone has experienced. And Job is surrounded by friends who are giving him terrible advice, who are counseling him and, and are asking, what did you do to offend God? What did you do to make God angry? They're telling him to curse God. Job, meanwhile, a man of faith, has no idea what the cause is, no idea what the motive is, no, no understanding of the reason for his misfortune, yet he refuses to renounce God. In the middle of all that, could Satan steal his faith away? Even when Satan had, had taken his family from him and left him only his wife who was equally devastated, Satan removed everything that he owned, everything that Job possessed. He left him sick and covered with boils and sores, so much so they said that he scraped them off his body. That is the kind of extreme that would make you say, if he's going to lose his faith, if he's going to give up on this whole thing, if he's going to renounce God, this is certainly where he's going to give up. And you see, Satan is the tormentor through all of that. And I love the book of Job because what does Job say in response to all this? He has actually a lot to say if you read through it, but he says this at the end, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You can't kill that kind of faith because I believe God sustains that kind of faith in the midst of everything. Satan can't steal that away. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of Satan being the accuser. He comes to challenge Jesus through Peter. He goes after Paul like a thorn in the flesh. Satan is the accuser of God's people. If you follow God, Satan is going to come after you. He is the persecutor. But here in verse 33, Paul is asking, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The one who, he is, who is trying to do that is Satan. Or the beginning of the next verse in 34, who then is the one who condemns? The one who tries to condemn you is Satan. Satan is always trying to bring a charge against you. Every time you stumble or make a mistake, he's there to condemn you, to whisper in your ear, to, to discourage you from following after Jesus or coming back to God. He is constantly trying to focus you on your weakness rather than on God's strength. He seeks to persuade you that you have to earn God's favor. He's constantly telling you that you don't deserve to be saved. And if we're honest, often he can build a pretty strong case. But here's the promise. Paul's asking, who then is the one who condemns? We just 
We just heard from who the primary condemner is, but Paul answers the question, no one, no one, Christ Jesus who died more than that was raised, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus who died for us and didn't just die, was raised for us and now is interceding for us. To intercede means to intervene. To step in when we are when we face accusation or condemnation, Jesus steps in those places on behalf of us. It goes back to the very beginning of chapter eight, where the text says, "Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." There's no condemnation. No one can take away what you've been given freely in Christ Jesus once you receive it. When we fail, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And the purpose of that conviction is to draw us back into fellowship with God. On the opposite hand, when we fail, Satan tries to condemn us. He tries to tell us there's no way that God would ever take us back. These are opposing forces. The Holy Spirit draws me to God and Satan drives me away from God. The question is, which force will you choose to believe? I can tell you one force is infinitely stronger than the other. God is infinitely more capable and powerful. Romans 8 is saying, because of what Jesus did, there is now no condemnation for us. N.T. Wright says, this statement is the foundation of Christian joy. There is no condemnation We've been liberated. That's, that's why in churches all across the world, we sing on Sunday mornings. We are a people who are free. And Jesus is praying for you. He's committed to you. In fact, Jesus is infinitely more committed to you than you are to him. He will not fail. In 1981, there was a man named Eugene Lang. And he was going back to his elementary school to give a speech uh, at the school where he had graduated from decades earlier. And over those decades, he had faced quite a bit of success. In fact, he was now personally worth millions of dollars. But also over those decades, the elementary school he grew up in had also changed drastically for the worse. That school was located in East Harlem, most of the students were poor. The dropout rate was among the highest in the nation. And so Eugene is standing there and he's giving his graduation speech and he's talking about working hard, studying, going to college. And as he's looking out, he's noticing that few are paying attention. You must study, he continues. You must learn. You must attend junior high school and then high school and then college he tells the story, he says, those words were empty. Few in that room, parents, teachers, educators, had faith or the belief that the majority of these kids would even make it to high school. In fact, the statistics, the history of that community, it would argue directly against his speech. So Eugene's standing up there and he says, stay in school and I'll, and he pauses for a moment, and then he blurts out, stay in school and I will give each of you a college scholarship. And the room is silent. Pauses for a moment. And then there's this wave of emotion, cheering and applause from the room as this promise that Eugene had just made set in. 
What's amazing is that promise was the beginning of a movement that has seen more than 16,000 students from that community graduate college. With the addition of hundreds of additional sponsors who were inspired by Eugene's generosity. The school was changed. They had to hire tutors just to allow students who were wanting to succeed now step up and succeed. And here's the thing, those students, though the statistics were stacked against them, though the world was telling them that they couldn't succeed, though the world would tell them they were a lost cause, they succeeded because they knew that someone was for them. And it made all the difference. I was thinking of that story and realizing, doesn't it make a difference to know that God is for you? That God is for you, that he's in your corner, that he has called you, he has justified you, and he is changing you. That Jesus died for you, he rose again, and he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. And the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you to help you overcome your areas of weakness. You think of it that way, all three members of the Trinity are on your team. They are in your corner. And Paul is saying here in Romans 8, how could you possibly lose? I want to finish today. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this amazing promise that we just read from Scripture. So I want you to think of something right now. Maybe as I've been speaking today, the Holy Spirit's already starting to nudge that out. I want you to think of a situation or a circumstance in your life where you feel like God has been against you. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it was a time that you were hurt, you faced abuse, whether it was physical or whether it was verbal. Whether you were bullied, people said things against you and you've held a grudge and you ask the question, honestly, God, where were you in that circumstance? Where were you in that situation? I don't know if you were for me. Maybe you think of something in your present. Maybe it's a current struggle, something that seems so hard, so big, that it is absolutely impossible to overcome. For you, maybe that's an addiction. Maybe it's something that you go back to as a a source of comfort. Maybe it's a work situation where you're saying, God, I believe that it feels like you are against me in this situation. Where are you? I don't believe that God is for me. Or maybe you would think about your future. Maybe you've held on to a belief that God just doesn't care about what you do. You know, talking about faith, talking about Jesus, that's something that super Christians can do. And you've been going through the motions. You've been living in a manner that says, you know what, I don't believe that God cares what I do with what he's given me. I'm going to do my own thing. You've been holding on to that. I want to give you an opportunity right here in this space to repent of that. Repent just means to turn away from that and say, God, I'm sorry. Bring that before the Lord. Pray in this moment, God, I believe that you are for me. I believe that you say in your word that you are for me, God, and I declare here today that you are with me in this. God, this situation, this circumstance, Father, help me see you at work. Help me believe that you are at work in my present circumstance. And God, I believe that that changes everything. I'm gonna trust you. God, I'm gonna step out in faith. I'm I'm gonna respond the way that you want me to. God, I believe that you are for me. What an amazing promise that is. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Those of you who are in Mount Pleasant as well as in Alma and online, uh, we hope that we see you next Sunday as we get ready to con uh, conclude this series through Romans chapter 8. Have a great week.